bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, August 2nd, 2011. I will start this week's podcast with the latest update on efforts in Washington, D.C. to increase the debt ceiling limit, as well as reduce the annual federal deficit. Then, in the long-closing tax credit segment, I'll discuss a recent stakeholder meeting where participants discussed the administration's efforts to reduce duplicative regulations by better aligning federally funded affordable rental housing programs. I will also share some highlights. First, highlights from the National Council of State Housing Agencies 2009 Long-Term Housing Tax Credit Utilization Data, and second, highlights from a report about the cost of permanent supportive housing. I will close the Long-Term Housing Tax Credit segment with information about Novogratz and Company's plans to celebrate the 25th anniversary of the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit. In the Historic Tax Credit segment, I have an update on the IRS appeal in the Historic Boardwalk Hall case. I will also bring you details about the next meeting of the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. Then, in our New Market Tax Credit discussion, I'll discuss the provisions of the bipartisan New Markets Tax Credit Extension Act of 2011, which was recently introduced in the House. And finally, in our Renewable Energy Tax Credit discussion, I'll discuss an upcoming congressional hearing on energy tax policy. I will also discuss the introduction of the Geothermal Tax Parity Act of 2011. And last, but not least, I will examine the provisions of Oregon's Renewable Energy Resource Equipment Manufacturing Facility Tax Credit. So if you're ready, let's get started. In general news, as listeners know, the political tug-of-war over the debt ceiling limit continued last week and through the weekend. The good news is that late Sunday evening, President Obama and congressional leaders announced that they had reached agreement on a framework for a deal that would cut trillions of dollars in federal spending over the next 10 years and also allow for an increase in the debt limit. Democratic and Republican leaders in Congress spent yesterday making final arguments to their party's members in advance of votes. In the House, the bill ultimately passed yesterday, and in the Senate, the bill is expected to pass today. Now, initial reports did indicate that there was relief, but little enthusiasm for the compromise agreement that was finally reached. The New York Times quotes Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid as saying on the Senate floor yesterday, and I quote, People on the right are upset. People on the left are upset. People in the middle are upset. Close quote. The final deal will immediately enact 10-year discretionary spending caps that are expected to generate $9 billion in deficit reduction. The White House says these caps will reduce domestic discretionary spending to the lowest level since President Eisenhower was in office. The President will be authorized to increase the debt limit by at least $2.1 trillion, thereby eliminating the need for further increases 
until 2013 and more significantly after the 2012 elections. The deal also tasks a 12-member bipartisan Congressional Super Committee with identifying an additional $1.5 trillion in deficit reduction. The White House says all the priorities of both parties will be on the table during this process, including both entitlement reform and, of significance to our listeners, revenue-raising tax reform. That super committee is required to report legislation by November 23, 2011, and that legislation would receive fast-track protections. Congress would then be required to vote on the committee's recommendations by December 23, 2011. The deal includes a so-called enforcement mechanism established to force all parties to agree to balance deficit reduction. This mechanism, which comes into play if the committee fails, triggers spending reductions beginning in 2013 that are split 50-50. That's 50% domestic and 50% defense spending. The White House summary says that the enforcement mechanism protects Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare benefits, unemployment insurance, programs for low-income families, and civilian and military retirements from any cuts. Now, at the time of this recording, as I mentioned, the compromise was approved by the House Representatives and was expected to be approved by the Senate and signed by the President. To stay tuned on updates, in the meantime, you can follow me on Twitter. Now, turning to tax reform, one of the many topics that have been brought up at least brought to center stage during the debate over the debt limit, has been tax reform. And as I mentioned, it will play a role in Congress's efforts for additional deficit reduction savings. Now, last week, on July 26th, the Senate Finance Committee did hold a hearing that was entitled Perspectives on Deficit Reduction, a Review of Key Issues. In a statement that was prepared for the hearing, Ranking Member, Republican Orrin Hatch, address the trend in debt limit plans, a trend to require the Senate Finance Committee to undertake tax reform, and specifically the various calls for changes in tax expenditures. Senator Hatch said that he believes the tax code should be reformed. It should be reformed to promote fairness, simplicity, growth in jobs in the economy, as well as efficiency. However, he emphasized that he does not believe that raising revenue by horse trading selected tax expenditures against each other is true tax reform. He said that tax expenditures should be thoroughly examined in the context of tax reform and not as one-off efforts at raising revenue. Senator Hatch noted in his statement that the Joint Committee on Taxation lists more than 217 tax expenditures. As such, He said a comprehensive examination of tax expenditures will require examination of a host of factors, including distributional effects and interactions among various features of the tax code. He said, and I quote, We need to look at the forest of individual and corporate tax expenditures and not merely the trees that appeal to focus groups or along the campaign trail. We need to look across the board at tax expenditures and not simply at whatever subset happens to serve political or campaign interests. Close quote. During the hearing, Robert Greenstein, 
president of the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, also argued that deficit reduction plans should cover both the expenditure and the revenue sides of the budget. Robert Greenstein suggested that policymakers should aim for deficit reduction packages that, over time, are split about 50-50 between outlay reductions and revenue increases, with much of the new revenues coming from scaling back tax expenditures. Links to all the prepared testimony from this hearing can be found online at www.novoco.com. Simply click on the Hot Topics button. Also of note, last week on July 27th, House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Dave Camp delivered remarks to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in which he addressed the topic of tax reform. Congressman Camp said, and I quote, It might seem like circular reasoning, but tax reform should reform taxes. It shouldn't be used to raise taxes. Close quote. He went on to repeat a theme that has been repeated by several lawmakers this year, that the tax code should not pick winners and losers, nor should it be a tool of industrial policy. Chairman Camp said that lawmakers should reduce the number of expenditures, credits, deductions, and exemptions that bestow preferential treatment on various groups and activities. And finally, he said that, above all else, the tax code must be conducive to growth and job creation. He said, quote, tax reform should encourage economic growth and job creation, not hinder it. Now, this final point is of particular interest to the tax credit community, as it has been clearly documented that the low-income housing tax credit, as well as new markets tax credits, historic tax credits, and renewable energy tax credits, all help create jobs. And as tax reform efforts continue to gain momentum in Washington, D.C., it will be more important than ever for the tax credit communities to convey to lawmakers how these tax credits contribute to the economy and create jobs. And then in final related Ways and Means Committee news, Congressman Pat Tiberi, as well as Congressman Charles Bustani, announced a hearing on the intersection of energy policy and tax policy for tomorrow, August 3rd. Congressman Tiberi is chairman of the Subcommittee on Select Revenue Measures, and Congressman Bustani is chairman of the Subcommittee on Oversight. Tomorrow's hearing will be a joint hearing of the two subcommittees that will focus on the dual priorities of comprehensive tax reform and a sustainable energy policy. I'll discuss that hearing in more detail in a few moments during our Renewable Energy Tax Credit discussion. And then lastly, while we are on the topic of tax reform, I'd like to note that this year marks the 25th anniversary of the passage and enactment of the Tax Reform Act of 1986. The Tax Reform Act was the last major reform of the tax code and, of course, and of special interest to our listeners, it was the enacting legislation for the low-income housing tax credit. Novigrad and Company will be celebrating this milestone next month, and I'll discuss those plans in more detail in the low-income housing tax credit portion of this week's podcast. So, stay tuned. In low-income housing tax credit news, on July 27th, last week, the White House's Domestic Policy Council announced the launch of two federal alignment pilot programs to better serve low-income renters, while reducing regulatory burden on affordable housing developers and owners. At a rental alignment conference at the White House that was attended by one of my partners, Blair Kenser, federal, state, local, and private sector stakeholders discussed the progress that was being made on other administrative solutions to better align affordable rental housing programs administered 
by the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the Department of Agriculture, and the Department of the Treasury. As listeners know, there are a number of affordable housing programs that are supported and administered separately by different federal departments, departments that are responding to different needs. And, over time, affordable housing developers and owners have become increasingly reliant on multi-layered finance and subsidy structures. But these programs have not always been designed to work well with each other. As a result, affordable housing owners and developers can be burdened by overlapping administrative requirements. Last year, the White House's Domestic Policy Council established the Interagency Rental Policy Working Group, a group designed to respond to the need for better coordinated federal rental policy. The Rental Policy Working Group has engaged state, local, individual, and private stakeholders to identify administrative changes that could increase overall programmatic efficiency and enhance the ability of communities to create and preserve affordable housing. Now, through this process, recommendations have been developed to align a variety of areas. These areas are physical inspections, financial reporting, appraisals, market studies, capital needs assessments, energy efficiency, fair housing enforcement compliance, subsidy layering reviews, and tenant income certifications. The White House reported on its blog last week that of these opportunities, two in particular, physical inspections and subsidy layering reviews, were deemed particularly ripe for immediate implementation. As such, last week the group launched two pilot programs to test solutions for reducing regulatory burdens in the areas of physical inspections and subsidy layering reviews. These pilot programs were designed in response to feedback that the administration had received from stakeholders over the past year. Several state housing finance agencies are participating in the pilot programs. Housing finance agencies from Michigan, Minnesota, Ohio, Oregon, Washington, Wisconsin are part of the physical inspection teams that are testing how to limit the number of federally sponsored physical inspections at each multifamily property that's financed with multiple federal funding sources. And then on the subsidy layering review front, housing finance agencies from Michigan, Ohio, and Wisconsin are participating in an effort, and they're also joined by housing finance agencies from Nevada, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and South Carolina to test to how to standardize and align subsidy layering review requirements across agencies. Now, on the same day as it announced these two pilot programs, the administration also released for public comment its conceptual proposals for streamlining rental housing programs in these and the list of other topic areas that I mentioned a moment ago. The National Council of State Housing Agency says the proposals are based on a set of guiding principles that direct that the changes be responsive to local stakeholders, require no statutory action, can be accomplished at low to no cost, and ultimately create cost and time savings for all parties. The administration is seeking feedback on its proposals by August 26th. You can find copies of the proposals and details on submitting comments online at www.novaco.com. Simply click on the Hot Topics button. From there, you can select the link to the Rental Program Alignment 
under either the LIHTC or the HUD tabs. Novograd and Company is analyzing the proposals that were released last week, and we're investigating the progress of the Rental Policy Working Group. We'll report on this issue in more detail in the September issue of the Novograd Journal of Tax Credits. You can also feel free to contact my partner, Blair Kinser, in our Maryland office. Now, turning to 2009 local housing tax credit data, last month, the National Council of State Housing Agencies released local housing tax credit utilization data for 2009 by state. According to those figures, overall, about 42% of the total 2009 low-income housing tax credits were exchanged for cash by credit allocating agencies under the Section 1602 Cash Grant Exchange Program. NCSHA reports that nearly 67,000 affordable housing units were financed with 2009 low-income housing tax credits, or exchange funds. A link to the 2009 utilization data can be found online at www.taxcredithousing.com. And then turning to the supportive housing front, an operating cost analysis of permanent supportive housing that's funded in part by low-income housing tax credits indicates that it is a stable investment. The report is entitled Permanent Supportive Housing, an Operating Cost Analysis, and it was released last month by Enterprise Community Partners and Corporation for Supportive Housing. Now, for background, permanent supportive housing offers intensive supportive services and targets residents who earn extremely low incomes, have serious, persistent issues that may include addiction or illness, and who are once homeless or at risk of being homeless. The report attempts to answer the questions that investors and syndicators have asked about the risk and profitability of permanent supportive housing as compared to affordable housing developments more generally. To conduct the study, Corporation for Supportive Housing analyzed financial data provided by Enterprise for 10 affordable housing properties and 10 permanent supportive housing properties that were financed with 9% low-income housing tax credits. Researchers found that occupancy was strong for both sets of properties, though revenues were 9% lower for permanent supportive housing. Operating expenses were also 11% higher for permanent supportive housing, with the cost of increased security accounting for much of that difference. However, permanent supportive housing developments have strong cash flow because of significantly lower debt service obligations. The report says this balances the lower revenues and higher operating expenses. According to the authors, a strong service partnership is crucial to maximizing housing stability which in turn leads to increased rental income and reduced repair and maintenance expenses. You can find a copy of the cost-benefit analysis at www.enterprisecommunity.org. Now, in closing the Long Housing Tax Credit section this week, and as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, Nova Gratton Company will be celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Low Income Housing Tax Credit Program at our 18th annual Affordable Housing Tax Credit Conference September 15th and 16th in San Francisco. Conference panels will address issues that are vital to successful low-income housing tax credit ventures, such as workouts, steps to reposition a troubled property, and we'll discuss the resurgence of the low-income housing tax credit equity markets. I encourage you to join us in San Francisco for the conference. To register, you can go online to www.novaco.com backslash products. We're also preparing a special edition of the Novograd Journal of Tax Credits that'll mark 
the 25th anniversary of the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. The September issue of the journal is going to feature coverage, such as the current legislative priorities for the program, an update on year 15 issues facing Low Income Housing Tax Credit properties and partnerships, a look at the history and trends of the Low Income Housing Tax Credit property valuation, as well as a bunch of other items. So if you're not already a subscriber, I do encourage you to check out the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. You can request a sample copy by sending an email to products at novacode.com. In historic tax credit news, last week, the clerk of the Third Circuit Court of Appeals entered an order directing the Internal Revenue Service to file the record on or before August 1st in its appeal of the U.S. Tax Court decision in the historic Boardwalk Hall LLC versus Commissioner. This is a procedural step, and it was taken because the IRS did not, that's right, did not file the record 40 days after it filed its petition of appeal on April 1st. Now, there was some speculation last week that this indicated the strong possibility that the IRS could be preparing to dismiss its appeal in the historic Boardwalk Hall case. That said, at the time of this recording, the appeal had not yet been dismissed. Stay tuned, and I'll tweet an answer if it comes this week. Also, the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation announced that it'll meet next Thursday, August 11th. This meeting is going to be held at the Mayflower Park Hotel in Seattle, Washington. Now, the council was established by the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966. The council advises the President and Congress on national historic preservation policy and it comments on federal, federally assisted, and federally licensed undertakings that have an effect on properties listed in or eligible for inclusion in the National Register of Historic Places. Now, who makes up the council? Well, the council consists of the architect of the Capitol, as well as several secretaries, namely the secretaries of Interior, Agriculture, Defense, Housing and Urban Development, Commerce, Education, Veterans Affairs, and Transportation. It also includes the administrator of the General Services Administration, the chairman of the National Trust for Historic Preservation, the president of the National Conference of State Historic Preservation Officers, and then it also includes a governor, a mayor, a Native American, and eight non-federal members that are appointed by the president. Now, these meetings are open to the public, and a copy of the council's agenda for next week's meeting can be found online at www.historictaxcredits.com, as well as in the July 28th Federal Register. In New Market Tax Credits, we have very good news. Last week, on Tuesday, July 26th, Congressman James Gerlach introduced House Resolution 2655, which, more significantly, is the New Markets Tax Credit Extension Act of 2011. This bill would extend the New Market Tax Credit Program for five years through 2016 and would authorize $5 billion in authority each year. The bill also allows the New Market Tax Credit to offset the alternative minimum tax. Now, without an extension, as our listeners know, the New Market Tax Credit will expire at the end of this year. The bill is co-sponsored by the following members of Congress. Congressman Earl Blumenauer, John Lewis, James McDermott, Richard Neal, Charles Rangel, and Congressman Pat Tiberi. Now, in the current legislative environment, the chances of securing a five-year extension of the tax credit is unlikely. This bill won't pass on a standalone basis. But it's promising that the bill was introduced with bipartisan support. 
Now, the New Market Tax Credit Extension Act of 2011 has been referred to the House Ways and Means Committee, and it serves as a vehicle to demonstrate support for the program. And as such, increasing the number of co-sponsors is key to the ultimate success of its ultimate extension. Now, legislatively, an extension of the New Market Tax Credit would likely come via either tax extenders or through the tax reform effort. The full text of H.R. 2655 can be found online at www.newmarketscredits.com. You can also find its companion bill, Senate Bill 996. Turning to Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, and as I mentioned earlier in today's podcast, Congressman Pat Tiberi, along with Congressman Charles Bustani, will hold a joint hearing of their two subcommittees tomorrow, August 3rd. Congressman Tiberi is chairman of the Subcommittee on Select Revenue Measures, and Congressman Bustani is chairman of the Subcommittee on Oversight. Tomorrow's hearing will focus on the dual priorities of comprehensive tax reform and a sustainable energy policy. As part of the Ways and Means Committee's tax reform agenda, that's more broadly applied across the full committee, this committee and its subcommittees are holding hearings on how comprehensive tax reform would affect particular sectors of the economy. Now, Chairman Camp, chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, requested that Chairman Tiberi and Bustani begin with an inquiry into energy tax policy. As listeners are well aware, the current tax code does include numerous provisions that are intended to advance various energy policy goals. These goals include provisions dealing with production, efficiency, and conservation of energy. Now, in announcing the hearing, Chairman Tiberi said, and I quote, energy security and comprehensive tax reform are two of the most important priorities we can pursue to create jobs and ensure the long-term strength of the U.S. economy, close quote. Chairman Tiberi said that as the Committee with Jurisdiction over Energy Tax Policy, the Ways and Means Committee should examine how the committee can design tax policies that achieve the nation's energy security goals while also staying true to the principles of simplicity, fairness, and growth that drive the committee's tax reform agenda. Chairman Bustani said that comprehensive tax reform needs to consider whether tax incentives promote a sound energy strategy. He said the hearing will examine how the IRS implements and enforces rules and energy credits and it will explore the role of the tax code in energy policy. I'll report on the outcome of this hearing in next week's podcast. Also, last week, Senators Ron Wyden and Mike Rapo introduced Senate Bill 1413, the Geothermal Tax Parity Act of 2011. The bill temporarily increases the investment tax credit for geothermal energy property. Senate Bill 1413 would increase to 30% the investment tax credit for geothermal projects through December 31, 2016. The bill has been referred to the Senate Finance Committee. Two companion bills, H.R. 1384 and H.R. 2408, were introduced in the House of Representatives earlier this year. Copies of these bills and other renewable energy tax credit legislation can be found online at www.energytaxcredits.com. And for more information about the investment tax credit for geothermal energy property, give my partner Tony Graponi a call in our Boston office. Now, turning to the state of Oregon, in early July, 
the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast brought you news of potential changes to the Oregon Business Energy Tax Credit Program, or the Betsy. At the time of this recording, many of those changes were still awaiting the governor's approval. One component of the Betsy program that has been approved by the governor is the Renewable Resource Equipment Manufacturing Facility Tax Credit. This is HB House Bill 2523. It was enacted on June 23rd, and it does take effect on August 1st. And it transfers administration of the Renewable Energy Resource Equipment Manufacturing Facility Tax Credit from the Oregon Department of Energy to the Oregon Business Development Program. This program provides tax credits that can be taken against Oregon corporate income and excise taxes. It applies to any structure, building, machinery, or equipment that's used to manufacture component parts of electric vehicles as well as electric vehicles themselves. The credit also applies to equipment, manufacturing, and other products that use renewable energy resources as well as applies to renewable energy storage devices. Now, to be eligible for the credit, there are several conditions that have to be met, including the facility must be located in Oregon, and it must have received final certification from the Oregon Business Development Department and the Oregon Department of Energy. To claim the credit, the property must receive preliminary certification before January 1, 2014, and the credit can provide up to 50% of the certified cost of a renewable energy facility. Now, developers claim 10% of the certified cost each year for five years to make up the 50%, and unused credits can be carried forward up to eight years. Now, the credit can be suspended or revoked if the taxpayer, one, fails to construct or operate the facility, two, the facility ceases to operate, or three, the taxpayer obtained the cost certification through fraud or misrepresentation. A copy of HB 2523 is available online at www.energytaxcredits.com, and you can also read more about the other changes to the Oregon Business Energy Tax Credit, or BETSI, in the August issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. You can also contact Nicola Pinoli in our Portland office for more details. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratz, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratz and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novogratz.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratz Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogratz and Company, LLP, is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novogratz.com.